Greetings again to all of God's people. This is Mordecai Joseph. We are now in lesson number 13. And last time we have covered, uh, that is, we began to cover the concept of uh, coveting in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. Uh, let me read again Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, and then we'll continue from where we left last time. Here we see Mother Eve being tempted by Satan, by the devil. He's not called here uh, Satan. He's called the serpent. And in verse 6 we read, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. In other words, we're talking about Mother Eve relying on her senses, which at this point were very pure. And so we're trying to cover the biblical concept of it. In other words, how was it meant how was it understood? How was it uh, taught in the beginning? As Christ oftentimes would say, in the beginning it was not so. So, whenever you want to know something uh, in its purity, we have to go to the beginning. And that's basically what we are doing here. And we're trying to cover these major, major concepts that affected very profoundly the morality of the West. And for that matter, many other uh, societies... And it's important for us, if we are to worship God in truth and in spirit, that we do it in a pure way and come to the understanding that God gave us to begin with, instead of coming to God and worshiping Him with the knowledge of the tree or the knowledge of good and evil. There is truth and untruth, purity and impurity, and God does not accept this kind of worship. And so, in essence, in going through the book of the law, the five books of Moses, we're trying basically to recapture the purity of truth as it was from the beginning, which basically formed the background of the apostles who wrote the so-called New Testament, and those who go directly to it, having no background, no understanding of the mind of the apostles, of the purity of the faith, of the truth, of the scriptures that Paul will tell Timothy later on, from a child you have known the holy scriptures that were able to make you wise. In other words... Every writer of the New Testament was like Timothy. As a child, from the beginning of life, in the Jewish community, and all of them were Jews, none of them were Catholic or Protestants or anything else, all of them were raised on the Torah, raised on the law, raised on the prophets, raised on the writings, and the purity of the teachings that came from it, not what became later on in the so-called established Christianity. And so we are trying to recapture true values, so to speak, in that sense, to borrow from uh, uh, somebody's uh, statement. Uh, and so, last time we covered, uh, we began to cover the meaning of the word to covet, because that's the specific subject that we're talking about here. So, let me repeat, as I said before that, I'll go through it again, just to give you a sort of an introduction. First, let's ask, what does the word covet mean? In the Hebrew Dictionary, we find the following meanings that cover the diverse forms of the verb and noun covet. And again, as I mentioned before that, uh, the writers of the Hebrew Dictionary were neither Catholics nor Protestants. They were not Puritans or Victorians. They were experts in the Hebrew language. They were basically Jews. And uh, did understand very correctly the meaning of the Hebrew words. And while in the King James, many, many words have been translated based on the culture and the concepts and the theology and the upbringing of the translators. And in many cases they were right, 
But there were many other cases where they were not right. And so it's important to know the purity in every case, not just some of it. Otherwise, you're ending up with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's not God's way. And so, we're going to ask ourselves. First, let's ask, what does the word covet mean? And here I should in interject, I'm reading from a book that was written about the subject, uh, called Conspiracy Against Sex. And this is what we read, I'm quoting. First, let's ask, what does the word covet mean? In the Hebrew Dictionary, we find the following meanings that cover the diverse forms of the verb and noun covet. One, desire, lust form. And lust, we're talking about the uh, full concept of it as we covered previously. Be carnally excited, speaking about the physical uh, aspect of it. From the point of view of uh, either a child, an innocent child, a babe, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's giving a little bubble and he's very excited about it, or he's giving a little toy, or uh, for that matter, you know, even adults, we're talking about the pure carnal excitement, not the impure. Uh, it means pleasant, it means charming, beloved, lovely, delightful, desirable, precious, pretty, graceful, cute, darling, dainty, delectable, and also it means greed, avarice, grasping, envious. So we see, in essence, the majority of the meanings of the concept to covet, or covetousness, is positive, not negative. And therefore, in some cases, the translators of the King James, instead of putting the right word, the correct word, to covet, because of their background, because of their culture, because of their theology, because of their upbringing and their morality, they did not want to use the correct one because it had very, very bad connotation and only bad connotation in that morality. And that's not biblical. And so sometimes it translated it to be pleasant, other times desirable. In other words, when they understood that it was a positive application of it, that's what they used. And that was not a correct way of translating. That's not an honest way. An honest translator will tell you not only what it says, but also what it means. But one that uses his own culture, his own upbringing, his own background, and injects it into the translation is a dishonest translator. And that's basically, unfortunately, was what uh, the translators of the King James uh, were in part. And so we continue to quote. As you can see, covetousness has many positive and some negative aspects to it. It's not all bad or all good. Yet all of your life, you just knew, quote-unquote, that covetousness is all bad, haven't you? You have been misinformed. You should know that as it is in the case of lust, so it is in the case of covering or sensuality. You can either use it or abuse it. The command, quote, thou shalt not covet, unquote, is against the abuse, not the proper use. It forbids coveting that which is not yours. Not coveting per se, as established Christianity's morality has generally taught. You want to be moral? Use it properly. Don't stifle this otherwise wholesome desire. And continue to quote, It is interesting to note that the King James translators have often, as in the word last, translated the word covet in its various forms into desire or delectable, or desirable, or pleasant. Uh, since we know too well the negative examples about covet, or the concept of covetousness in the Bible, let's go to the positive cases to balance the negative ones. 
In Psalm 68 and verse 16 we read, The hill which God coveted to dwell in. And of course, the King James would not translate it for what it really says, coveted. They use a different word, desired. In Isaiah, in many cases, the word covered was translated to mean desire. In Isaiah 44, verse 9, for example, it was translated to mean delectable. In Isaiah 53 and verse 2, the famous chapter that refers to the sacrifice of Christ, we read, quote, There is no beauty that we should covet him. And the translators did not like to use the word covet because to them it was all sinful, all bad, and so they used the word desire. There is no beauty that we should desire him. Well, that's not what God dictated to Isaiah to write. He used the word covet. Because see, the mind of God is pure, but not the mind of the translators of the King James. And so, it was covet. And in Genesis 2.9, as we read before that, it speaks about the creation of the garden of, Ed- of the trees in Eden. Uh, here we read, Out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is covetous to the sight. And the King James translated that pleasant, because they didn't like the word covetous, because of what it meant in their own culture. Well, in one sense, I can understand it, why they would write pleasant and not covetous. If it has a totally bad, you know, negative connotation uh, because of your culture, well, we might as well uh, give it uh, the correct meaning of it. So, in that sense, it was not all bad. But the reality is, people ought to be taught what is right and what is wrong. Then you don't have to play games with the words. And then in Proverbs uh, 21 and verse 20, uh, we read, There is treasure to be coveted and oil in the dwellings of the wise. In other words, they use the word desire instead of coveted. In Psalm 19, verse 11, it speaks about the law, the statutes, and the fear of God, which are to be more coveted than than gold. In other words, again, instead of writing the word coveted, because that's exactly what it says there in Hebrew, they use the word desired uh, for the law of God, for the statutes. So you can see, you can covet the law of God, you can covet... Statutes of God, you can uh, uh, desire uh, Jesus Christ and use the word covet. There's nothing wrong with that. It all depends on the use of it. But when you defile something or when your mind becomes defiled and when defilement and darkness enters into the mind and the heart of, of men, then everything becomes defiled and polluted. And now they have to search for other words to, to uh, explain what it really means. And... That, in essence, is the problem that affects many people. Now, continuing to quote, the Old Testament uses in different forms the word covet 65 times. In most cases, it is used in the positive. In the King James Version, the word covet has been translated into desire, pleasant, delectable, beloved, and the like. And, of course, I'm adding my words here. Uh, They've done it because... Uh, the, the concept and the culture and the philosophy and the theology did not allow the correct translation. And so continue to quote, in the New Testament, the word covet has been translated in different forms 16 times. In some cases, it has been translated as lust, but in most cases, it has been translated as desire. And as we read before that, in Romans chapter 7, where Paul said that when the evil desire, you see, the evil covetousness, entered into him, that's when he, and he coveted it. Uh, in other words, if it is not an evil desire, if it is a good desire, then coveting is, is not negative, but positive. 
And so it's important for us to know the difference. So we continue to quote, in some cases has been translated as lust, but in most cases has been translated as desire. In many ways, lusting and coveting are synonymous, both in Hebrew and in Greek. The words lust and covet are used more often in the positive than in the negative. Only the context can tell you which way it goes. And it's always important, as I mentioned that several times before, and I will continue to do it. When you study the Word of God, look and search and discover the background to what you are reading, and then find out the context, and then you'll be able to get to the meaning of it. Otherwise, you'll have a difficult time uh, coming to the pure truth. Continue to quote, Establish Christianity's self-appointed teachers, though claiming to derive their morality out of the Bible, have nevertheless often misunderstood the above facts and the difference between the right and wrong use of lusting, covering and sensuality. They have simply never considered the whole spectrum of these biblical subjects and ingredients of life. The devastating results of such half-knowledge have uh, have knowledge have wreaked havoc on the lives of victimized and innocent Westerners for almost two millennia. Such misinformation has resulted in diverse forms of mental aberrations and deviations that drove many into moral mental institutions or suicide. It still does to this very day. When society or religion pronounce indiscriminately every form of lust, sensuality and covering to be sinful or immoral, they hand over to the forces of darkness the little weapons of mass emotional and mental destruction. In doing so, they hurl themselves into the deep abyss of psychotic perversion and insanity. Notice the vast array of professions that deal with the human mind, thriving handsomely on the tragic results and miseries produced by the Victorian, Puritan and early Catholic morality. The mental insanity that gripped Europe due to sexual repression in medieval times, is still very potent in its destructive forces, in spite of all modern advances in understanding of human sexuality. The arch-enemy has always appeared as an angel of light and righteousness. By mixing truth and error, he has managed to deceive the whole world. See Revelation 12, verse 9. His human ministers have blindly followed their subtle master, often without realizing it. By why, why should you? Why follow the Via Dolorosa of such a source of hellish nightmares? Why follow his deceived human cohorts? And we continue to quote, I came that you may have life and that more and that more abundantly, declared your maker. I was speaking here about Jesus Christ. Why not follow such a genuine source of the fountain of life? This fountain of sweet and abundant life is available to you. Take advantage of it. And we're talking here about the law of God. As you can read in uh, Psalm 19. Let's, as a matter of fact, let's go to Psalm 19. I think it is Psalm 19, where we're talking about the tree of life. And the description of it, and in essence even uh, how it tastes, you know, to, to, uh, to those uh, that do understand it, that do understand the meaning of it. And so in Psalm 19, we read about the law of God from the point of view of the understanding of King David, and then according to God's own heart. And he's talking about, uh, let's see, in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. That is, the Torah of the Lord, the Torah of Yehovah, is perfect, converting the soul. Because it is perfect, because it is complete, 
Maybe later on I'll, I'll cover this, uh, the, the full concept of the word perfect in Hebrew. It is a very, very profound word. It, it converting the soul. The, the testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. Now notice what we're talking about here. The law of Jehovah, the law of God, is perfect. The testimony of, of, of uh, Jehovah is sure. There is Jehovah in, in, uh, in Hebrew. Uh, as I said uh, earlier, for those who, those who haven't uh, heard it yet, uh, every time the word Lord appears, the actual word there in Hebrew is Jehovah. Why would they change the word Jehovah, which means the was, is, and the will be, that is eternal, to Lord, which means master? I don't know. I accept that people think that they know better. And uh, they have to translate, that is mistranslate, and uh, claim that it is true. And so we read in verse 8, The statutes of the Lord, I'm just reading it in English, so I don't have to explain it every time, but just remember that. Whenever you see Lord, it's Jehovah. And it's not Yahweh, by the way. It's not Yahoo, or whatever uh, people choose uh, inventing you know, from their own minds, their own uh, imagination. It's Yehovah. In Hebrew, you cannot say Yahovah or Yahweh. That's grammatically uh, an error. Yah comes only at the end. It's second syllable, but never is the first. And so it's Yehovah, it's Yehoshua, not Yahshua, but Yehoshua. The Yah, the Ah sound ter, uh, changes to Yeh. So the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. We're talking about the senses here, spiritually speaking. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgment of the Lord are true and righteous, altogether more to be desired than the gold. And so he continues to talk about that. And it's very important to see it from that point of view. And also the proverb, when he talks about the, about the, the law of God, it compares it to a tree of life. And talks about the fruit of the tree of life, which are good. And so it's very important to, to uh, look at it from that point of view. That the word of God is a tree of life, but the word of man, the word of Satan, is not. And so there is a lot of miseries there. And so Jesus Christ came and told us, I came that you may have life and that more abundantly. In other words, when you do understand the purity of the word of God, that is spirit, the word of God is spirit, just not a word, you will have abundant life. But if you are going to follow the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where there is perversion of everything that I taught you, that's what he's, as he's telling them, you're not going to have abundant life. And that's why, that's the reason why we're covering this uh, terminology and these concepts very thoroughly. Because many people suffered very greatly because of that for thousands of years. They did not have abundant life. They had miserable life because they had misconceptions of the Word of God. That's the reason why many people hate the Word of God. It's not the Word of God they hate. It's a perversion that they were taught about the Word of God. It's a misconception. It's the abuse of authority that they hate. Not really the authority of God. They've never known God. They've never known the pure Word of God. They think they did. They've been taught lies. And so ironically, with all the evil that Satan had done on this world, uh, on humanity, uh, and all the misconceptions and the deceptions and all the lies that he told through his ministers, he, in essence, was not talking about the real God, he was talking about the false concept that he invented. 
And so any concept that he taught humanity was a false concept. When their eyes are opened, when they come to God, when they come to Christ, and that's what it says, that's what, what it's talking about, the glorious gospel. Well, what is the glorious gospel? The glorious message, the word of God, the purity of it, the truth of it, not the lies and deceptions. When they come to that, because they've been blinded, Satan didn't want them to know the purity of the word of God. And that's how he was able, and that's how he managed to deceive humanity, and that's how he managed to make them miserable. And that's how, to this very day, a lot of people are miserable, even, even within their own marriages. And are capable of enjoying the pleasures of love, as God intended for it to be, because their minds are polluted and defiled. And that which is pure is evil to them, and that which is light is darkness to them. And God says, I can that you may have life, and that more abundantly. And without the law of God, the word of God, which is from Genesis to Revelation. Some people think the law of God is only the five books of Moses. Well, that's a foundation of it. And then there is a magnification of it. Christ came to magnify it. You see, that's what the Apostle Paul was doing. He was magnifying the law. If he didn't know the law, if the law was done away, what is it that he was magnifying? He wouldn't be able to magnify anything. And so those people who think that the law is done away with, well, might as, say, might as well say God is done away with. Well, you can't. That's nonsense. And some people think, well, you should go to the New Testament and uh, forget about the Old Testament. Forgetting that the New Testament could never be preached, the apostles could never preach, Jesus Christ could never preach, unless there was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Law, Prophets, Writings. Everything they've ever said was based on that. So it's foolishness for people to think that to be a Christian, you should go to the New Testament. Not to the Old Testament. And that's another perversion and deception and misconception on the part of many. But if you want to have abundant life, you live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God from Genesis to Revelation. And don't pick and choose for yourself. And so God says, I can that you may have life and that more abundantly. And this God is the one that spoke to Moses. This is the one that gave the law of Moses. And this is the one that led Israel out of the wilderness and married Israel and died for Israel so that he can remarry Israel. And we shall go through that more later on in chapter 11 and 12 of Genesis. You'll have a better understanding of what it means, the church of God. And so he says, I came that you may have life and that more abundantly. And we continue to quote here, declared your maker, why not follow such a genuine source of the fountain of life? This fountain of sweet and abundant life is available to you. Take advantage of it. By doing so, you can turn the evil into good, darkness into light, and bitter into sweet. Stop being confused about the true purpose of your divinely ordained and designed human, either sexuality or sensuality or feelings or emotions or whatever it may be, uh, freely given to you by your maker for delightful joys, not as a chronic source of miseries. Why continue plowing in the rocky fields of thorny frustrations and mental agony? Wouldn't you like once and for all to remove your steps off the deviate path your arch enemy has paved for you? And uh, we're quoting here from this uh, book. And then we continue to quote, If your background has been the result of a Catholic or a Protestant indoctrination, your morality would by nature be a mixture of good and evil. In other words, poisoned morality. Hence, poisoned marriage, poisoned human relationships, defiled and polluted consciences, and consequently, unbiblical upbringing. 
and without the pure knowledge, as revealed in your Maker's Manual of Life, which is the Word of God, the Law of God, the Law, the Prophets, the Writings, the Teachings, the, the, the Writings of the, the Apostles, it's all one book. There is no separation there. And uh, uh, continue to quote about the ingredients of love. In other words, uh, let me quote again from the beginning. Uh, Without the pure knowledge, as revealed in your Maker's Manual of Life, about the ingredients of love, which include the wholesome use of love, coveting, and sensuality, total intimacy with your Maker, as well as your fellow man and mate, is absolutely impossible. There can be no shred of poison or polluted attitude in a pure relationship. Your arch enemy knows that. That's why he deliberately defiled your conscience toward these three major ingredients of love. Hence, sweet life is no more. Satan's deception has caused both men and women to lose the knowledge and proper understanding of their respective roles, duties and privileges in marriage. This were the God-given roles which were to ensure a wholesome atmosphere of love, joy, and perfect unity within the framework of marriage. Unfortunately for generations, men have looked upon women as sex objects instead of protecting and caring for their wives as for their own bodies. Husbands have abused their wives, relegating them to the lowly level of mere slaves. A husband should treat his wife as his queen and joint heir in God's future government over the universe. Women also have torn down the marriage institution by rebelling. That is, some women, not all of them. Uh, women also have torn down the marriage institution by rebelling against their husbands instead of complimenting them and adding to them that which is lacking. Rather, many wives have chosen to compete with them. And that's in essence what happened when a great misconception has entered into the mind of man. And man became, instead of the pure man that God meant for him to be an impure person. And so it affected all of humanity. And we continue to quote, Satan's false concepts are still being disseminated to the unsuspecting masses by sexually ignorant individuals. They are, in, they are injected into the minds of helpless human beings by educators, religionists, self-righteous moralists, and deceived parents, quote, unquote, little old ladies with unbiblical, quote, unquote, morals, still poison the social fabric of our morally confused society today. These all condemn the abuses of sex, but being ignorant themselves of the biblical teachings about its joys and pleasures, they fail to properly educate in sexual matters. And if you remember what uh, the apostle uh, said in Timothy, that old women, that is the elderly, that is the mature women, this should teach the young women to love their husbands. And he's talking about the totality of the arts of love. You see? And if their own minds are not pure, how are they going to teach you know, the younger generation of women to, to love their husbands? And that's in essence what happened from generation to generation. Polluted minds of women pass on those polluted concepts into the minds of their boys and girls, and so on from generation to generation. And that's a merry-go-round, a vicious cycle, so to speak. And only the word of God, as God said, only if you follow my word, you're going to have abundant life. There is no other way. And so we continue to quote, uh, This all condemned the abuses of sex, but being ignorant themselves of the biblical teachings about its joys and pleasures, they fail to properly educate in sexual matters. 
They hold back God's truth concerning the right use of the art of love. As a result, many ministers and parents have deprived children of sorely needed wholesome sex education from childhood to marriage. Yet they do expect their second generation to lead a happy and fulfilled marital life. This deprivation of biblical truth, though usually done without realizing it, has bred frustration, confusion, and illicit sex. And I wouldn't go on uh, with this subject because I think uh, I give you enough information in this area. And so let's go back now to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. And we're talking here about the concept to covet. Uh, when, when you come to the Ten Commandments, for example, uh, let's go to Genesis chapter 20. We read about the commandment where God told his people what they should do, what they should not do, what makes right, what makes wrong, and the Ten Commandments, and then the statutes, and the judgments, and the precepts, and testimonies, and ordinances, and internally called the Word of God. He told them in Genesis chapter 20 regarding this matter. In verse 17 we read, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That is, uh, uh, yes, uh, you shall not covet uh, your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. You see, in other words, when he uses the word covet, you see, uh, which in Genesis 3, 6 was used for the, for the tree, nechmat, that is pleasant, that is delectable. You see, he used the same word, uh, the verb that comes from the same noun, or the noun that comes from the same verb. And he's explaining. He's not saying don't covet per se. He says don't covet that which is not yours. And that makes a big difference. You see? It's just like saying don't eat. Don't eat what? Well, you can eat your own cake, but don't eat your neighbor's cake. And so to say just don't eat, that doesn't make sense. Because that does not explain the concept. And the meaning of what he had in mind. And so people just took it at face value. It says, don't covet in the New Testament, because Paul said, don't covet, that means covering is wrong. No, he's talking about don't covet that the ill desires, the sinful things, things that are not yours, but the Lord determined to be seen. If it's not yours, then you take it. And that's what he's talking about. But, as Peter said, and uh, you remember in, in Peter, when he talked about the writings of the Apostle Paul, he said there are people who are ignorant people, who are unlearned people, they wrestle with those scriptures, you know, of, of uh, our beloved Paul, the things that he had written, which, you know, admittedly, some of them are a little bit hard to be understood, but hard by whom? By those who have no background, and do not know the context, and have not been raised like Timothy, on the law of God, on the Holy Scriptures. They are the ones that find it a little bit hard to be understood. And so when you study the law of God, it's not hard to be understood. He says, those people wrestle with those things to their own destruction. You see, but the ones that do understand, have a background, know the context, and have been raised on the Holy Scriptures, and do study the law of God, and don't, don't say, well, the law of God is done away with, or they have uh, wrong uh, attitudes toward it, resentment toward it. And so we don't want the law of God. Let's, let's go to the New Testament. We just want love and grace and sweet, nice and nice thoughts. Well, these people are going to have a hard time understanding teachings of the law, magnifying of the law. And that's the reason why they fall into diverse uh, lusts, into diverse uh, deceptions, into diverse problems, unnecessarily so. And so they pass it on to others. Now, in, in, the, in the book of Deuteronomy, 
Moses is repeating the same commandments. Let's go to the book of Deuteronomy, because there, I don't know why, but there he made a little difference there in terms of uh, this word covet. And so when, he, when we read here in verse 21, he said, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. He began with your neighbor's wife. Well, in Exodus, uh, God says, not, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. In other words, he didn't begin with that. He said, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. But Moses, in essence, is just paraphrasing here. Or, or he's not quoting word for word uh, what God said. But he says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house. Well, God says in either case, don't covet, don't covet. But Moses used, uh, uses the word uh, for the house, you shall not desire. And the word for desire in Hebrew is lust. You see, he says, don't lust for your neighbor's house. He did not use the word covet here. He used the word lust. But basically, uh, lust and covet uh, have uh, meanings that are very, very close to each other. That's the reason why he uh, felt free to, to change the word here. But it's to change the wording. Instead of using covet, he used the word desire. Well, he did not say desire, he said, which means don't lust. In other words, don't find something which is not yours appetizing to yourself. In other words, don't go for that which is not yours. This is what sin is. Not desiring, not lusting, not coveting that which is yours. That's not a sin. But by people uh, who had no proper understanding of the law, it became a sin. And so they pass it on. And so people read it and they take it for granted. But coveting is wrong. Lasting is wrong. And that creates a lot of problems because human nature, you see, by nature, before it is polluted and defiled, covets and lasts. And nothing wrong with that. If you teach the people, you can covet all you want, last all you want, but do it for that which is yours, not for that which is not yours. And therefore... When people are taught properly that way, their minds don't get perverted and warped and demented, and they don't have miseries in life. And yet, that's exactly what Satan had done. He appears as an angel of light, giving you the tree of the knowledge of good, and then deceiving you about the bad. And that's how he works. And so it's important for us, as we study the Word of God, to always ask, what is it that was in the mind of God when he said this and that? And if you read the translation, you're going to miss an awful lot in the translation, because first, you have to get the background of the translator. What kind of a person was he? What kind of a background did he come from? What kind of a, a culture did he come from? What kind of a, a philosophy of life did he have? What kind of morality? You see, don't take his word for granted. But when you go to the pure word, that is the original word, you're not going to have to, uh, to worry about that. And so it's important to, to uh, notice the difference here. And so let's go back now to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, and we'll continue here from the point of uh, the deception of what mother is so. So we'll read again. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, there is nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with the sense of sight, nothing wrong with the, the fact that it's good, because God made it good, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, that is, covetous to the eyes, and nothing wrong with that. God made it deliberately that way, and the tree desirable to make one wise, 
You see, there is nothing wrong with that. God made it desirable. God made it to be coveted. She took of its fruit and ate. And now that's where the problem was. Taking of that which God said, don't take. He didn't say, don't look at it. He didn't say that it's not pleasant to the eyes. He didn't say that it's not desirable to make one wife. He just said, don't take it. And that's when the sin began. And you see, Satan, master of counterfeit, gets to the truth as close as possible, and then injects deception. Twists a little bit. And then you begin to think that the whole thing is either bad or the whole thing is, is either good. And that's how he does his work. And it's very important for us to constantly, as Paul said, not to be ignorant of the devices of Satan. He's very clever. And he's very clever, and he's more clever than most of us put together. And only the Word of God, only putting the whole armor of God, that is, all the totality of the laws of God, of the statutes, of the judgments, of the precepts, of the ordinances, of the Word that proceeds out of the mouth of God through his prophets, through his apostles, through his teachers, will protect us from the devices of Satan. You see? And so, it is important for us to be mindful of all these things if we do not want to be deceived, just like Mother Eve. She didn't see anything wrong with that. And so it says in verse 7, then, that was a consequence, then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now that they have sinned, it's not that they, it was wrong to look at the tree, it's not that it was wrong that it was desirable, but it was wrong to eat it. And when they did, poison entered into their mind. And it was a false enlightenment that caused them to be ashamed that cause them to be naked. And that's in essence what happens to people who are being taught that light is darkness. They think they've been enlightened and now they develop a wrong attitude. And so people develop their wrong attitude toward lust, toward covetousness, toward the senses, toward sensuality, toward many of the things that God gave us in their purity. Because when we listen to the wrong spirit, that's what happens. And so now we are ashamed and we feel naked. And we want to hide. And that's in essence why we took all this time to cover this concept very, very thoroughly. Because it is far-reaching and consequences. And as you proceed throughout the book of the law, as you proceed through the prophets and the writings, as you proceed through the New Testament, you see the consequences of what happened here in this verse 6, 7, and before that and a little bit after that. And all revolves around the same thing. And that's the reason when God used a terminology for his marriage, he used sexual terminology, he used desires, he used the senses, he used covetousness, he used the lustful uh, concepts. You see? And that's what Satan had done to humanity. Taking the very purity of God and warping it and perverting it and dementing with it the minds of humanity, of men, of women, of children. And so it's important for us to unravel all the sins and go back to the purity of truth. And this is where they found themselves, and we should be very careful, because many of us may not realize that we are in the same category to one degree or the other. We're in the category of verse 7, where Adam and Eve found themselves. And unless we, by the washing of the word, wash away all the filth and stench and pollution and come out of Babylon, 
we will come before the throne of Christ and we'll think we're doing pretty good and we're great and we'll think that we have garments of righteousness and Christ will look at us and say, what on earth are you doing here? Where are your garments of righteousness? And think, well, I've got it no more. He says, no, you don't. You don't have the garments of righteousness, the white, pure garments of righteousness. Get out of here. You don't belong here. You see, we don't want to be told, I don't know you because you're lawless. You see, and yet people think that they are doing great. Innocent people many times. They're not doing it viciously. And we do not want to be caught ashamed or naked before the throne of God. And nakedness and being ashamed has to do with the impurity of the word of God, of the truth of God. And the deception that enters into our minds and oftentimes we're not even aware of it. And so it was natural for them to go into hiding. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in and uh, here it says the sound, and here it says the voice. In other words, he was walking the garden and talking. He was talking to them. Because Jeremiah was speaking, and that's what he did. He came off and went to the garden in the, in the cool of the day, and he had a chat with them. And it was so natural uh, for him to walk around and talk to them, and they talked to him, and there was no shame, no misconception there, no impurity. But now as they hear his voice, he's walking in the garden like they heard many times before, they're going to hide him. And so when they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's a good time to walk in the garden. And Adam and his wife hid, him, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And verse 9, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? You can imagine this scene. You walk in the garden, here is God, it's just so natural to talk to him. And one day, you know, you've done something bad, you go into hiding, he walks around, he says, uh, you know, he wants to chat with you, just like he did before, and you go into hiding. So he says uh, to Adam and Eve, where are you? And in verse 10 we read, so he said, that is Adam. Um, by the way, Adam uh, means men. Uh, Adam is not a uh, real name. Uh, in the sense of, uh, well, here's a human being is born, then give it a name. He's still a human being, but he has a name. Well, Adam didn't have a name in that sense. Adam was called just Adam, which means from Adama, which means soil. Uh, he was called for what he was, but Eve was given a name. Eve, uh, Hava, means Haya, means living. And, and Adam gave her that name. Uh, in, in essence, Adam was the first person uh, to have a name. Adam himself was just called by what he was. In verse 10, so he said, that is Adam, I heard your voice in the garden. You see in verse 8 it says, and the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. But here it says, I heard your voice, because that's exactly what he heard. A voice, not a sound. Uh, King James translators decided that uh, in verse 8 they'll put sound, in verse 8 they'll put the correct one. And I don't know why. So he says, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And that doesn't make sense. He was naked all this time. So what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about naked righteously. That's what God says. Make sure that you are not found naked. You see? Make sure that you are not found without righteousness. And that's, in essence, what he's saying in, uh, in other words. I realize that I've done something wrong. That's the nakedness he's talking about. Nakedness of the mind, of righteousness. And I hid myself. And that's natural for us to do. Even as children, we do something wrong, we go into hiding. 
Or at least, you know, we, we look down on the floor. We, are, we cannot face the eyes of our parents. And that's naturally what we do as adults too. That's what Adam is doing here. Verse 11, And God said, and he said, Who told you that you are naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? I mean, God knew exactly all along what was happening. Then men said, instead of saying, well, I knew your commandment. I gave myself to temptation. I know it's wrong. I repent of it. Please forgive me. No, he doesn't say that. He says what all of us generally are saying when we do not obey the law of God, when we do not walk in the light. We blame somebody else. That's the most natural thing to do. And so he said, well, the woman that he gave me, that's her fault. In other words, he's saying, in essence, that's your fault, God. You gave me a woman, that's what you did to me. And so that's exactly what the man says. The woman whom you gave me, that is to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. So it's not my fault. I haven't done anything wrong. In other words, Adam remained naked instead of clothing himself with righteousness by first repenting, he chose to remain naked. And then the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree of that I ate. Well, Eve is following in his footsteps. So we're in verse 13. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? In other words, at this point, God is not correcting Adam because he already realizes which direction he went. He chose nakedness rather than righteousness. He chose darkness rather than light. He chose impurity. He chose the word of Satan. He chose to believe the wrong spirit. And so he's not, go he's not going to lead him to repentance. He's not going to rebuke him at this point. He's not going to grant him repentance. He's not going to preach to him. He's in essence saying, well, that's the way you want to go. You're going to have to go your own way and learn the hard way. And so when he goes, when he talks to Eve, he says, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, oh, I'm sorry. I've done wrong. I realize that's not what I should do. I beg for your forgiveness, repentance. Oh, no. She follows the same example of, of, of uh, her husband, Adam. Well, at this point, we are going to stop, and uh, this is Mordecai Joseph again, saying greetings to all of God's people, and next time we'll continue with the same subject. The preceding message was taken from the World Wide Website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible Study. You have questions? The Bible has answers.